Well, good morning. I don't know about the rest of you, but it has been a very long week to get back to Sunday, and I'm grateful that we are here. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me back to the book of Romans. Now, last week we got the opportunity to begin chapter 6, and I'm excited to get back to chapter 6 again. I did not get to finish my sermon from last week. I got through parts 1, and I don't know if I got through part 2 or not. We're going to cover 2 and 3 today. But... I want to give you an opportunity here to kind of review. This particular passage of Scripture is one of those that is a transition. It's a transition in the book of Romans from an argument style into a proclamation style. He has made the arguments in chapters 1 through 5 about the atheist, the, uh, the theist even, the Jew, the Gentile, and, and he's gone through all of that to to get to chapter 6. And at the end of chapter 5 and in the beginning of chapter 6, there is a statement here, and Paul is giving us a few rhetorical questions based on the evidence he's provided in the first five chapters. So I want to, uh, when we read this, I need you to understand that Paul is going and saying, these questions are really not uh, something that we should ever have to question, but it's there so that we can understand everything that's been presented before is the idea that we're pushing forward into. So we're going to get there in just a moment. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to please stand, if you would, in reverence and honor of the Word of God as we read chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Here's what it says, chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we had been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day and thank you for your many blessings. We are thankful for this passage of scripture that gives us hope unto our sanctification in Christ. May today we learn some things about what sanctification can look like or should look like, about our being dead to sin and alive unto Christ, and about what righteousness looks like imputed to us. Help us, O God, to understand these things today. Guide us into all truth by your Spirit and by your Word. We are so grateful and honored to to be able to be a part of the church at this time. What What a blessing it is to be a part of a New Testament church, to be here with faithful brothers and sisters that would come together to to give you honor and to give you praise and to worship you and to hear your truth proclaimed. Let us take it to the ends of the earth. 
We love you. We give you praise and thanks. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now, as we begin this morning, I started last week with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, and I want to do something similar to that today. Charles Spurgeon once said, If Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I can no longer live in sin. He goes on to say, But I must arouse myself to love and to serve Him who has redeemed me. I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for His sake. How can I live in sin when He has died to save me from it? You know, that quote is, is, a, is a famous quote of his, but more than that, it also gives us the opportunity to understand the mindset of what it is to live a sanctified life. For us, a life sanctified in Christ, for those who are believers, is one of honor. I, I love it when people tell me that, you know, I got saved so I really can do pretty much anything I want. Now, they don't like to say that to me just like that, but in general terms, they live their life like that. And so they will begin to live their life in a way that is not honoring to God, not honoring to the, to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They just live it from day to day and expect, well, because I've, I've made a, a profession of faith and I've said a prayer one time, therefore I'm okay and I can just do as I please. That is a scary, scary scenario. Because what we understand about holiness is it's a, it's a consistent, constant living out your faith. And that, does, that means we have to be willing to not live in sin any longer, to not strive with sin. I love the late, uh, late great Adrian Rogers. I was going through some of his quotes this week, and it's funny. Uh, he always has a way to say things. And he says, if the devil's not bothering you, then you're probably going the same direction he is. That's an honest statement. Or my, one of my other favorites about the devil, he said, uh, if you eat the devil's corn, don't be surprised when you choke on the cob. That happens often. Now, that may not make sense to many of you, but basically it's this. If you continue to do the things of the devil and of the world system, why do you not expect to get choked up by it or choked out by it? I'm often wondered, I often wonder about my life. How, how do people perceive me? But more importantly, how does God perceive me? And if you ask that question often, just how does God see you? I think you'll, you'll come to a place where you will get to experience God a little deeper, a little better. The Bible tells us to do that. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. So I ask you today, examine yourself. And that's what we're going to do as we go through this passage. Last week, we took a look at something about being dead to sin and what that looks like. Sin is not the venue to find grace. That's what we learned last week. We don't continue to do sin just so we can find more grace. That's what a lot of people do. They look for a religious experience. So they get caught up in sin and then they go back and say, well, I've got to find grace again and I've got to have a religious experience again. That's not the point and that's not how that works. You may have that religious experience. 
again and again. The problem is, is that a life that is sanctified to Christ doesn't have to go back and try to find forgiveness again and again and again. You see, I, I submit to you that if you're having to go back and find grace again and again and again, you didn't find it in the first place. I'm not saying for, for the sins that you commit here and there, that you're, maybe you're living a life that's consistent, but every now and then you falter. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a life that, where you're walking constantly in darkness, but expecting to be saved. That can't happen. The Bible says it can't happen. The Bible says you're a liar if that happens. It's 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. So the struggle for us as believers becomes, how do we live a life sanctified? Well, we have to realize some things. We're dead to sin first. That was last week's message, being dead to sin. This week's, not only are we dead to sin, and those, that's found in three ways, by the way, realizing that sin is not the, uh, the venue to find more grace. Secondly, that sin is our enemy now. And thirdly, our baptism gives us identification with Christ. Now, once we realize those three things, we understand our being dead to sin. But now we need to understand not only being dead, the negative side, but we also have to understand the positive side, being alive unto Christ. That's point number two for those of you taking notes. Being alive unto Christ. I read a story this morning. A man was writing and he said, he said this, and I'm just going to quote him. He said, he was talking about security, about being alive unto Christ. He says, when God made the oyster, he guaranteed his absolute economic and social security. He built the oyster a house, his shell, to shelter and protect him from his enemies. And when hungry, the oyster simply opens up and receives the food in. It just comes right into it. Now, many of us would love to live that way, being having such a security that the oyster is, just like the oyster, we'd be sitting there, the shell's hard, it's immovable, you can't get into it, it's pretty tight, and every now and then when when you're hungry, you open up and you just receive food. Wouldn't that be a great life? I think my dog lives that way. Pretty sure he does. He's safe in his little cage at home right now. He's got food and water in there. And every now and then we open up the cage and we put more food and water in there. He goes outside and he runs around and he comes back and he lays in his cage. I don't understand. That's how he he lives. On the other hand, though, when God made the eagle, he gave him a different purview. He told the, the eagle that the blue sky is your limit. You can go anywhere you want. Build your house however, wherever you want to build it. And most eagles build their houses high on a cliffside, exposed to the rain, to the snow, and the winds. And they have to fly out every day, no matter what the weather looks like, and hunt for food. But what's interesting, the eagle is our national symbol. Because he represents, and by the way, not the oyster. He represents who we are as a people. We are free. Free to explore, free to go, free to to make our way. Tell me, which would you rather be? An eagle free or an oyster bound? I don't know. 
There are some who would say they'd rather be an oyster, I think. See, in Christ, we've been made new. We've been made alive. We've been made free. And that for us is hard because we were bound. We knew what we were about. By the way, uh, there's another great quote. I love this one, and I can't take uh, credit for it. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Oh, yeah. Man isn't a sinner. You're going to love this. Man isn't a sinner because he sins. He sins because he's a sinner. You see, when you're bound by sin, you're that oyster. You're bound up. You can't go anywhere. You don't get to fly away. You don't get to go and do anything else. It's just there. You're bound to the sin that besets you. It's going to hold you back and hold you down. But on the other side, when we are made alive unto Christ, there is freedom found there. I may be his bondservant, but it's a willingness now. You see, I was a slave to sin, but I'm a bondservant to Christ. You see the difference between the two? Let me explain it like this. We have a notion of what sin, of what slavery is in, in our modern era, and it's not anything like what we think it is. In our minds, slavery is always bad. But really, we just call it a different name now. We call it work. We call it a career. You see, I signed myself over to work for people, to work for an employer. That's what a bondservant did. A bondservant would bind himself to another person for a set amount of time, for a set amount of pay. And that's a bondservant. That's a slave. He was a slave to that person. When I was uh, about back a couple years ago, I had agreed to go to work for this man and, and to start him a business. I was his bondservant in that respect. I had access to all of his accounts. My responsibility was to build a business for him. And I did that willingly. And in compensation for my time and my effort, I was paid a set amount of money. That's what a bondservant is. But a slave is different. A slave is not paid. A slave is coerced. A slave is indentured. He is put in under, under that yoke of bondage unwillingly. That's how sin is. Sin is the bondage master. Sin is that that yoke that's placed upon you that you didn't want, but you got it anyway. And what Christ comes along and does is set you free from it. And when he sets you free, when you agree to, to believe, when you agree to take his salvation full and free, then you become that willing bondservant. I willingly serve Christ because he set me free. That's the payment. He set me free. We're made alive in Christ. Look in chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 4. Here's what it says. Chapter 6, verse 4 through 7, it says this right here. Therefore, we are buried with him in bapti by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so should we also walk in newness of life. Now, the notion that newness of life happens means that something had to die. And when something dies, 
it's dead. There's nothing else there. It's, it's what it is. And in this case, we are made alive into Christ. Now, what does that mean? That means that the old sinful person that we were dies. And we are raised to walk in newness of life with Christ's power. Now, what does that mean for you? That's called, are you ready for it? To be born again. That's, that's what it means when we talk about being sanctified. We, we are now made right with God, and we are able then to do the right things. We are able then to do God's will. This is going to mess you up if you're, not, if you're not careful, but here's what it is. Prior to, your, prior to anybody's salvation, they don't have a bend toward doing God's will. Now, they may occasionally, occasionally do something that's nice or right, at least by society standards. But the Bible declares that there is none good. That's what we find out in uh, chapter 3 of Romans. There's none that seeketh after God. However, once Christ has found you and has set you free and made you alive, that's when everything changes. Even in our passage, it says, listen to this, For if we have been planted, verse 5, <coughs> together in the likeness of His death, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Do you guys remember the story of Jesus? We're about to come up on Resurrection Sunday. And we talk about what, when Christ came out of the grave, what it, what it was like for Christ to have died and then be raised again. In that story, we see him in the likeness of what he was before, but not the same. Now it's new. Now it's different. And that's what happens to us. The old man is killed, is dead in sins and trespasses. Uh, the book of Ephesians declares. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That, that was our standing. We had no hope, no standing with God. Then you read verse 13 and it says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now that's an important distinction. It had one thing changed, and now you have been brought nigh, brought close, brought in, if you will, to the family. You see, it was originally designed that the Jews would be the way in which people would come to God. Originally, it was designed so that the Jews were set apart as a sanctified people, and they are still today a sanctified people. Their responsibility was to show the world God, to make Yahweh apparent to everyone. And through the lineage of the Jews, Christ was born, as a savior to men that he might be the light unto the world that now there's a change that's happened although everything happens the same way you have to believe in this it's the same way in the old testament you had to believe now christ has come lived a sinless and holy life by the, he was born of a virgin lived a sinless and holy life died on the cross was resurrected after three days and now sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. There is a process that Christ went through that we might be sanctified and be new in Him. 
you were afar off, you were outside the commonwealth of Israel, you were outside of God, and now you've been brought nigh, you've been brought in by his blood. We're made alive under Christ. Most of us have never and have no idea what that even looks like. Because we're still caught up in the machinations of living day-to-day life and sin has beset us right and left. I'm talking about believers now, I'm not talking about unbelievers. Unbelievers, you're always there. You walk in darkness, we can't help you. We're trying to give you the light, that's all we can do. But believers, we're still trying to kick open the dark doors and go back. Because that's how we operate. It's safe. It's easier. And it's to go along to get along. That's how we view it. We go along with the world and their systems and and the way in which they're going. But they're walking in darkness. Can't you see that? If the world walks in darkness and wants us to go along with it, we can't. We've been shown the light. We see what's in the darkness out there. They don't. That's why there's no problem with quote-unquote gay marriage out there. That's why there's no problem with the sin of abortion. That's why there's no problem with any sin anymore. I I love these quotes. And I I keep going back to them. There was one I read. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Sin that used to slink down the back alley now struts down Main Street. That's exactly right. It used to be that we didn't talk about certain things in sin, and maybe that was the problem. And and I'm just going to be blatantly honest with you here. I think that the sin problem in America today lays strictly at the church's door. Now, I'm going to, that's because it's me, and I'm just going to tell you it is. Here's why. We refused to talk about sin when it reared its ugly head. We let it go and said, that's just the way of the world. We're going to keep going and doing what we do and let them do what they do. And that's been the idea. And we've just allowed it to happen. We never said that's evil, that's wrong. And we never pushed back. And we never talked about anything like that from the pulpits of America. We didn't stand up when we should have. And so the sin that walks down Main Street now is because we didn't talk about it we should have we didn't deal with it when we should have as a as a church and as a society I lay that at our feet but we who have been made alive have responsibilities we're made alive in newness of life and and we don't even represent that well it's unfortunate Ephesians chapter 4 just a couple of pages over from Ephesians chapter 2, it says in verse 22, that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You see, there's a way in which we become and are using that transformed life. I was in a meeting the other day with a group of pastors. One of the things we talked about was what it means to have the Word of God at our very fingertips. And what that means in sanctification. What that means in, in living the Christian life. One, one, somebody who was at the meeting just made a comment. 
and said that there are occasions when Baptists, in particular, he mentioned Baptists because we all were Baptists, where Baptists try to put the Word of God on the Trinity. That we, we forget about the Spirit of God and, and we just focus on the Word of God and, and put that in place of the Trinity. That's not true at all. We just highly value what God said. We believe it's the inspired, inerrant Word of God. We believe that the Bible is literally true. So therefore, if it's literally true and God said it, guess what? We ought to follow it. We believe that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Christ is the inerrant Word. That whenever He spoke, He spoke. And it was His Word, God's Word. And it's for those who are God's people. I struggle with people who tell me that, well, you know, that Bible's just an old book. It has a lot of nice sayings in it, but really, is it literal? Are you supposed to take it literally true? Yes, absolutely. And I, and I firmly believe that. I believe there are certain things that are stories and allegories in it, but for the most part, I have to believe it's literally true. I believe that six days of creation, God created the world and everything in the whole universe in six days. And I got no issue there. He can do that. He's God. We are alive unto Christ. What he did for us gives us the opportunity to be something. What we, it was what we were created to be originally. We were created beings to walk with God and to give him glory. That's what we were supposed to do. But somewhere back in the Garden of Eden, we decided that oh, we weren't going to listen to God and his word. We weren't going to obey the word of God anymore. And we walked away from it. And in that, we sinned. And because of that, every man after that has sinned. We discovered that in chapter 5 of Romans. But here in chapter 6, we are made new in Christ. To walk in newness of life, we're made alive by His resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 says, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, then your faith is in vain, and ye are in your sins still. Then they which are asleep in Christ are perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of most men, or of all men, most miserable. Now, why does he say that? Simply put, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the hinge pin of my faith. Now, what's interesting about that is if you go and you do the history, the historical study of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is probably the most witnessed event in all of Christendom. Out of all the things that have happened in, in the world of Christianity, the one thing that is probably the most witnessed to outside influences, outside resources and inside resources, all can agree that the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. We've got, we've got people who were non-Christians who believe, who, who, who look into history and they see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. We've got people on the inside who say it happened. We've got every, every kind of evidence you can believe. It's not hard anymore. We've got within less than one generation, some as close as 20 years of, the, of seeing it happen. There are all kinds of things. You don't have to believe as a leap of faith. I, I, I struggle with that. Uh, 
this whole notion that it takes such a big leap to believe in, in Christ and to believe that he was raised from the dead, that he, that he was the Messiah. I, I've got a much easier time proving that than I do any other theory that's out there. Let's start with the theory of evolution for a moment. We're asking our children and, and, and others to believe that we came from a rock. I don't know about you. I didn't come from a rock. That's what we're asking them to believe. That we, we came from dirt. Well, we did come from dirt, scripturally. But we're asking them to believe that it all happened by chance. That intelligent life that speaks, that communicates to one another, that is in the human existence. I could stop at the eye of a human, just the eye, and look at its complexities and tell you that didn't have happen by chance. I don't care how many years you add to it. When, when I was a, a boy, I remember first hearing about evolution in the early 70s, or in the mid-70s, late 70s, trying to not make myself so old. When I was a boy, though, I heard about this theory of evolution. I heard about what they were saying, and they said that somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 million years ago, everything was created. I think the number last time we checked is three and a half billion or something like that now. You know, it's funny, the, the older I get, the further that timeline becomes. They have to add more years because it doesn't make sense any otherwise, and they can't prove it. Nobody was around. All they can do is conjecture and guess at it. All they can say, well, we'll look back at the, the geologic column and all that. No. No. You weren't there. Nobody was there. But God took the time to write it all down for us. You say, well, it's just somebody's story. Maybe. You're going to bet eternity on it? Some people say, well, I can't believe the origins of the universe found in the Bible, so therefore I can't believe any of it. Be a fool. That's your prerogative. See, preach, you can't say that to people. I don't have any choice. If you choose not to believe, that's on you. It's not on me. I can only deliver what God's given me to deliver. And he says he created it in six literal days. He says that he was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, and was resurrected again on the third day. That's what I know. That's the risen Lord that I serve. And we're to walk. We're to walk in newness of life under resurrection power. Let me give you one more point under this one. We're made alive that we should not serve sin. Look in chapter six, or chapter six verse five, and, or excuse me, six and seven. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. You see, because of my old nature, and because that's what I did, I served sin. I was a slave to sin. But when I was made new in Christ, that guy died. That guy died. And I am no longer under the sin bondage anymore. I'm not. Now, do I still sin? Yes. Now, let me, let me help you out here with that. Because there's a, mis there's a mistake that some people make. Because they see this in Scripture and they go, Okay, so I've, I've, been, I've died to sin and been born again, therefore I cannot sin anymore. That's not what that says. 
I've died, I've died to sin that I might serve it no more. That I should not serve it anymore. There's a difference in that statement. Now, I can still sin. Boy, my flesh is weak sometimes. That fifth helping of mashed potatoes and gravy, you know, gluttony. Oh, it's bad. Hate to talk about that when I know we're going to eat in a little bit. There are all kinds of sins out there, and, and we, we go and indulge that because the flesh is weaker. How do you fight that? I'm glad you asked. It's really simple. It's not hard at all. Read the Word of God. Pour it into your soul and into your mind. You know, it's funny. Everybody always says that, right? Everybody always says, well, just study the Word of God, and you'll, you, you won't go off into sin. Can I tell you how that works, though? Not the way we do it. We have a tendency to read the Word of God and therefore say, oh, I've read it, so I'm okay. I won't sin anymore. I won't go off into that sin. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about pouring it into you, the Bible says that we're to love God. The greatest commandment is to love God with everything you have. If you want a concise version of how to live the Christian life, that's it. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let me tell you how that works. To love God with everything you have is everything in your life helping you love God. And I can tell you straight up, no. No. And is it, is it possible to love your neighbor as yourself? The reason why Christ said that, by the way, is interesting. How do you love yourself? Well, most of us, I'm included, we, we, do, we have these rituals that we do to make ourselves clean, to make ourselves pretty, to make ourselves whatever. Now, I know you guys looking at me how you think I must spend hours working on this. I know. Gorgeous man that I am, right? But here's the thing. We don't treat ourselves badly. You don't go out and hit yourself with a hammer. If you do, you're a fool and an idiot. It hurts. You don't go out and maliciously look for ways to hurt yourself. And here's the rub. I treat others the way I want to be treated, but more importantly, I treat others the way I treat myself. And if you are hurting other people, can I tell you, you may need to check something. You may need to check your salvation. You may need to do a, 13, a 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Let me give you some scripture. We are made alive that we should not serve sin. Here's some scripture for you, John 8, 34. John 8, 34 said, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So if Jesus Christ has come along and made you free from sin, you can be free from sin. Now, do you want to? Will you? That's really the question. James 4.17 says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And if that doesn't help you enough, 
Here's another passage for you, Galatians 2.17. Pay attention to this one. Galatians 2.17. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also, are also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, it's who you know, or better yet, who knows you. It is the sanctified life in Christ that can be pleasing to God. Now, not that we always are. And that's why I want to stipulate that. But how can we be closer? And I say study the Word of God and pour it into your hearts and into your minds and in your souls. Everything that you do should be giving glory to God. That's how you can filter that, if you will. The whole duty of man is to give glory to God. That's our only purpose. How can you give glory to God? Well, what does God's Word say? If God's Word says, then do it's kind of like that with, with families, right? We all want our kids to, to, to be great kids, right, all the time. And, and I've tried to raise mine the best I knew how based on what I know about Scripture and what God told me to do. And, and, I, and I look back in my past, and there's no way that I had any kind of upbringing like that at all. I was a non-believing, none of my family was a believer. We didn't have any of that. But you know what we did have? There was obedience. Now, I don't understand that all the time. I, you know, I knew my grandfather loved me. I didn't have any struggle with that at all. Didn't, never doubted that at all. But my grandfather was one of those hard men, those old hard men. Now, some of you know who I'm talking about. That old hard man that, that you, you respected and you loved him, but he was a hard man. That was my grandfather. His word was law. It didn't matter if we thought he was right or wrong. We just simply obeyed. It was, it was just what we did. It was better to obey than incur the wrath at that point. That's not a correct relationship. You see, Christ proved his love to me. He died for me. I willingly obey him now. Where with my grandfather, I was obeying out of a sense of fear. I obey from a willing heart, God. I'm a man. And as a man, we have a tendency. Now, not all men are like me. I get that. I'm very headstrong. My wife will tell you. I don't, uh, I don't do a lot of this uh, idea of submission. It's hard for me. So, um, I, you know, early on in our marriage, I learned that I had to submit to God. And that God was really the only person in the entire universe I could submit to and it be worthy of my submission. Now what I've come to understand is authorities have been placed in my life for me to submit to in order that I might practice submission to God. And that's what I try to instill in my children. You submit to me and, and your mother in a way so that you can practice submitting to God later. And I always wanted them to never fear me in the sense of they had to fear me to be obedient. 
I wanted them to respect me and be obedient. That's what God wants too. We're made alive so that we should not serve sin anymore. You don't have to serve sin anymore. You get to serve Christ now. Last point, and I'll finish up. We are to walk in righteousness. Now, in verses 8 through 10 in our passage, this particular part is the hard part for most of us. Because we understand the idea we're dead to sin, and we understand we've been made alive to Christ. But now we get to this part about walking in righteousness, and we all kind of lose our minds. Let me read the passage real quick. Verse 8 says, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now, what does it mean to live righteously before God? Righteousness and holiness go hand in hand. Holiness is how you are righteous. Okay? Let me explain it like this. God is holy. He has cleansed you from sin, made you to be alive in Christ. Therefore, you have a way to be righteous. Now, there is, a, there is an essence to this that we need to understand. Several years ago, there was a, a Rose Bowl parade. I'll give you a story on this real quick. And in the Rose Bowl parade, there was a, uh, floats that were done by different various companies and, and people out there. And at the, toward the beginning of the parade, there was a, one of the floats had ran out of gas. And they didn't think to put gas in the vehicle that they were having for the float. So this, it held up the entire parade behind it because it was out of gas. And you know whose float it was? Standard Oil Company. They make gas. And that they were out of gas in the float. Can I tell you that that's a lot of the ways we live our Christian life? We have the prettiest float in the parade. We have the best, best opportunity. And we have the most power at our disposal, but we don't use it. Christians neglect their spiritual maintenance. We don't do our due diligence. Our walk spiritually is made possible by Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean we do it. It's just made possible. You, are, you have the ability to walk righteously before God. We just don't do it all the time. Ephesians 4.17 says this. It says, this, this I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that's in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being in past feeling, having given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. He says, don't be like that anymore. But listen to verse 21, or 20. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You see, there is a way in which we should do it. We shouldn't go back to the world's way. We shouldn't revert to the things that we did in the past to get us there. Now, I'm the world's worst at this, because I, I guess because I'm, I'm a big believer in... in uh, no, 
what I know, I suppose. And I would go back and I would try to say, okay, I've, I've, I've looked at the, how this worked in my life back then and maybe I should go back and redo that. Well, instead of asking that question, why don't I go and ask, what God would you have me do? Let me look into your word, find out what it says, and then proceed off of that and go forward. Now, here's the other side of this. I read the, the point to you. Our walk is... Our walk spiritually is made possible by Jesus. But our walk spiritually is not hindered anymore. Death. Now, this last week I went to a funeral. And there was a lot of talk about death. A lot of talk about what happens after you die. Death is not the fearful thing for us anymore. Jesus took care of that. I I don't have to fear the death to come because death for, for the Christian is a doorway one through every, which everybody passes but for the Christian it goes on to glory and for the non-Christian it goes on to hell that's why it's important on this side of the doorway what you do with Jesus Christ you can ignore him and that is your, your right to do that God does not force himself on you saying you have to, have to do this But he said, please do it because it's your hope. It's your only hope of escaping it. I'm not hindered by death anymore. I used to fear what people would think of me. Even when I was surrendering to the ministry, I was scared. What would people think if I became a preacher? Does God not understand who I was before I was a preacher? Oh, that guy. That guy. I shudder on that one. I'm from here, y'all. I'm from Northwest Arkansas. There are plenty of people out here who know my history. It doesn't matter. It's history. Christ has wiped that slate clean. My sins have been forgiven. Consequences still linger sometimes, sure. I mean, I got the sinful history of my whole family. I mean, I got male pattern baldness because of it. But here's the thing. I no longer have to fear death anymore. What's somebody going to do to me? I know there's a lot of talk nowadays about, you know, what happens in a church situation, blah, 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 shooters and this kind of thing. Do we worry? No, we plan. We plan for that kind of stuff. But we don't fear it. We plan, but we don't fear. It's the same way with the Christian life. We plan, but we don't fear let me give you some scripture here to help you out. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Now I want you to pay attention to the last one in particular. Sound mind means we plan. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but he's also not just made us naive. And that's what I think a lot of people out in the world think of, of Christians in particular. They think of people in the church and Christians as naive we're not naive not in the least God's not given us the spirit of fear but he's given us some other things he's given us power and love and a sound mind verse 8 says and I always want to read a couple extra verses with it it says be there now be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me as prisoner 
but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Now the difference here is being a partaker means action, means going forth, means doing. That means we're not given to fear anymore. We don't worry about what the world is going to do and what the world is going to say about us. We are out there and we are doing. And I think, Christians, we've missed something here on this one. If we're going to walk in righteousness, we have to be doers of the word, not hearers only. It's not enough for us to sit in our safe places and in our churches. We have to go out. Your neighbor needs Jesus. But he'll think I'm some kind of religious weirdo. And if he doesn't already think that, what does it matter if he does? They all know I'm a weirdo in my neighborhood. It's mostly because of my dog, but they know I'm a weirdo too. They know I'm going to talk to them about Jesus at some point, and, and most of them either cross the other side of the road or have that conversation with me when I'm out there. Our walk can't be hindered by the fear of death. Thirdly, it's manifested in the sanctified life of God. Our walk spiritually is manifested in our sanctified life to God. What does that look like? When God did the work of saving you, when God did that sanctifying work, when He did that saving grace for you, it manifested in you. It showed up. You see, if people don't know you're a Christian, why don't they know? There ought to be such a change And I always use this illustration here because it works so well. I heard a preacher tell it years and years ago. If on the way to church I told you that I was out on I-49 and I was out there on the side of the road, I had a flat tire, and all of a sudden a big, uh, we don't have log trucks here, I can't use log trucks anymore, big chicken truck, that'll work, big chicken truck came up and ran me over. He, he, I come into the church building after that happened, and I say, you guys won't believe this. I've been ran over by a, a chicken truck on the highway out there. I literally got smashed up by a chicken truck. And now you look at me and you say, I can't see that. You don't look like you've been hit by a, a semi-truck. What would a guy who got hit by a semi-truck look like? A pancake? Yeah. Uh, looks like a, a, a big bloody pulp in a blender? Yeah. But he wouldn't come in dressed for church. He'd have arms and parts dangling here and there, and he'd be different. You'd know something weird happened to him. Can I tell you that when the God of the universe does a change in you, and if you can't tell a difference, there's not a change. When the God of the universe makes a change in the life of a believer, it ought to be so apparent that nobody has to ask that something's different. They just know something's different about you. And I submit to you that if people don't know that there's a change in your life because of Jesus Christ, you need to get something right. You need to go back and make sure that you're saved. Because there will be such a difference. It will manifest in you, in your speech, in your walking, in your talking. Everything about you will change. Now, it may not happen all at once. But people will notice it. I went through this experience back years and years ago. Right after Kimberly and I were married, I had just gotten saved. and 
I was trying to keep my secular life and Christian life separate. And I'd go to work, and, and I'd work with some very rough men. I mean, we worked on a dock. I mean, it was a rough place. Not like a boat dock or anything, but just on like a unloading transports and stuff. And, and it wasn't anything to have foul language heard out there all the time. And there would be fights breaking out. I, I literally watched men, grown men, get in an argument, go out back, fight each other, beat each other to a pulp, come back in and start working again. I saw it happen. And I remember thinking to myself, what a hypocrite I am because I use this language at work, but I don't use it at home. I would never use it in front of my grandmother. I would never use it in front of my wife. But here I am at work using this kind of language. And I remember God breaking me. I remember when it happened. I can tell you the spot it happened in. And if the, if the place is still standing, I can show it to you. Where I literally fell on my knees, repented of my sins, and God changed it. And He began to change my speech. And I remember receiving the greatest compliment by my coworkers they could ever they could ever say. Several years later, I walked into an office and everybody was cussing. Everybody was cutting up, telling bad jokes and whatnot. I literally walked into the office and all of it stopped. I didn't say a word. I didn't have to. My life showed it. It manifested. Literally, the people who were telling the bad jokes left the room. And the people who were saying bad things went off to themselves. I actually had one come up and apologize to me for saying the bad things. And I never said a word. Now, I'm not holy and righteous before you. I'm not trying to set myself up as some, you know, prime example. Christ is our example. But I'm telling you that our walk ought to manifest spiritually to others. I'm going to give you one last piece of scripture. Ephesians chapter 2. Go ahead, I'll wait on you. I'll get a drink while y'all are coming. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now that word quickened in the King James means made alive. You, he's made alive. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Wherein in time past, verse 2, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Our complete nature was that of the world. In fact, the world would have would have wouldn't have thought twice about us because we were just like they were. Then you get to verse 4. And in verse 4, everything changes with two words, but God. But God. Why is it those two words change everything? Because God, with any added to anything or added over everything, changes anything and everything. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Now let me pause here for a second. I'm going to read you the statement without all the other stuff in it. Okay? There's a lot of commas here. 
And, and, and Paul likes to wax eloquent sometimes. He says, But God, and then at the end, hath quickened us together with Christ. But God hath quickened us together with Christ. Now, all the other stuff is important. It's to clarify some things. But really, the heart of this is, God has done the work. Do you want to know how you can be sanctified in Christ? Is let God do the work. But it requires something on your part. A willing submission. A willing submission. Are you willing to submit yourself to the Lord Jesus and His teachings and His authority? Because nothing else matters. You want to live a sanctified life? Oh, maybe you don't. Maybe you say, you know what? I just want fire insurance. You can't have it. If all you're living for is so that you can say, I've been to church and I made a profession of faith and therefore I'm okay with God and I'm going to go live my life the way I want to, I submit to you, you're not born again. You're not sanctified to God and he will, you will send yourself to hell. But you don't have to. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Flee from, flee from him. Submit yourself. Let God do the work of changing.